Welcome to the EMS Nation show. I'm your host, Faison Arshad. Today we continue with our CC TMC lecture series and I have on the line Dr. Chris Fulgar, the president of the Air Medical Physicians Association. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. The people are asking for more and we have no choice but to give it to them. Today's lecture is a very exciting topic, hypertonic saline versus mannitol. I remember debating this topic for years on end without any definitive conclusion one way or the other. Yeah, I completely agree. This has been a topic uh, for for the ages, really. We've uh, been talking about mannitol for years. Hypertonic saline has been something that has also come into the discussion. And there are still a lot of questions out there, despite the many years that we've been discussing this. You know, Drew really picked a good topic, and I'm excited to hear what he has to say about this. Well, Dr. Drew Cathers is certainly no stranger to AMPA. He just finished up his Air Medical Fellowship. Uh, Would you tell us a little bit more about him, Chris? Sure. Um, He is currently a flight physician with the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And this program is actually somewhat unique in the United States in that they fly physician nurse teams. And Dr. Cathers is one of the physicians that actually provides direct patient care. He has a lot of experience and he shares that experience with us in this episode. So with that, EMS Nation, enjoy. Um, so my name is David Cathers. I'm a med flight fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I work as an attending in the ER there, uh, also as a flight physician, about half and half of each. Um, and I get some time to come to do fun things like this. So I think some of you were here at my lecture yesterday, which means I had to come up with all new jokes, which is probably the hardest part. Um, so just, just an informal poll. For those of you that carry things for increased intracranial pressure, who carries hypertonic saline? Okay. Who carries a mannitol? just lights insects. Anyway. <laughs> Alright, so, so this is my Twitter, it's at DrewCathers, um, also my email down here, and then AndrewCathers at gmail.com. Um, just a real brief overview kind of setting the, uh, the table here, we're going to be talking about TBI, as far as why trauma patients die. So 45% of them die from hemorrhage, 41% die from TBI, and only 14% die from any of the other causes. Um, I talked a little bit about hemorrhage yesterday. I'll talk about TBI today. Uh, as far as these TBI patients, the reason most of them die is because of herniation. Once you herniate, it's really tough to ever come back from that. So this is kind of just a classic Wisconsin case. So I come from southern New England. There's not a lot of snowmobiles, but in Wisconsin, it's very popular. And apparently, it's acceptable to just have different trails between bars so that you can snowmobile between all your bars. Uh, <laughs> But they're essentially motorcycles. They go 70, 80 miles an hour. So we see a lot of bad snowmobile accidents. So, um, you know, kind of classic case. Scene flight, 50-year-old male, snowmobile versus tree. You get there, he's minimally responsive. Maybe he's posturing. Uh, His pupil looks like this. Uh, Maybe he's slightly bradycardic. He could be hypertensive, but more likely, as we'll talk about in a bit, he's probably hypotensive because he's unlikely to just have an isolated head injury. Um, And so the big question is, what are we going to do with this patient? So the epidemiology of TBI, just briefly, um, about 1.5 million people a year. It's increasingly becoming more of an issue. Leading cause of traumatic death in patients under 25 years old. 
Uh, and your most common mechanisms are falls and MVCs. This is actually a, a picture from a 16th century medical textbook about management of head injuries. And we actually haven't come that much further. Essentially, you know, we either try and shrink the brain or we try and take parts of the brain, the skull, off to relieve pressure on the brain, which isn't that much different than trepanation, which is what they used to do. Um, this will probably be a quick review for most people. We're just going to talk about the types of TBI. I just think it's helpful to realize that there's multiple discrete manifestations there. Uh, some of these are more likely to cause herniations, specifically, you know, epidurals, subdurals. So epidural is your classic arterial bleed. You have the lucid interval, um, lens-shaped, rapidly expanding. So these are seen as surgical emergencies. Um, you have subdurals, which are tearing of the bridging veins. Um, but these actually have almost as they can have higher mortality than epidurals. Um, and if you start, if you arrive on a scene and a patient has a subdural with a GCS of three, their mortality is 93%. So it's you know, pretty interesting. So this is your classic crescent-shaped subdural. Um, subarachnoid, blood in the subarachnoid space. Most of these are going to be aneurysmal and not you know, traumatic, although traumatic ones you generally do find on imaging. And 60% of patients with TBI have some sort of subarachnoid bleed as well. This is your classic subarachnoid picture. Some people call this the, the crab of death, the starfish of death. I, I kind of like the Richard Simmons. <laughs> so, you know, so, some people build lectures on things that they think are interesting. I usually just find funny pictures and then I try and extrapolate a lecture from there. So, <laughs> so you have uh, also cerebral contusions. Um, this is actually. You know, when people see uh, soldiers or people who have bad car accidents and they're, you know, they're cognitively disinhibited or they have some frontal lobe injury, usually it's because they had some sort of contusion or hemorrhage. Um, and that's because the part of your brain that is most easily bruised is the part near your frontal and temporal lobes where your bony ridges are, and that's where a lot of your personality is stored. This is kind of the things we see. So this is a really bad one here. And then diffuse axonal injury. Um, they don't typically herniate, but it's just kind of their initial CT might be normal, and then they just have kind of this gloss of gray weight differentiation on their MRI. Um, real important study I just want to address quickly is this EPIC study, which came out of Arizona. Um, so the, the most important thing here, I think, is they found hypoxia and hypotension are associated with really increased risk of mortality and TBI. Uh, and they defined hypoxia as a single episode of uh, SpO2 less than 90 and hypotension is a single episode of a systolic less than 90. Um, and so if you had an episode of hypoxia, your chance of dying went up four times, your chance of hypotension went up three times, and if you had a chance of both, if you had an episode of both, went up 14 times. Um, and they actually found the ideal systolic blood pressure was 144. That was when patients tended to do the best. So really kind of reiterates, um, you know, quote Dr. Hinckley, you know, especially as patients you have to intubate, you really want to prevent hypoxia, prevent hypotension the best you can. Looking at the brain trauma guidelines, so braintrauma.org is the Brain Trauma Foundation. These are the gold standard guidelines for management of TBI. Um, and so they look at 15, you know, they have kind of 15 points they hit at. Um, we're not going to cover all these today. Specifically, we're looking at hyperosmolar therapy and then a little bit about intracranial pressure thresholds. They do have a good diagram on their website which kind of talks about their whole overall look. Um, the only thing that's kind of interesting is they actually have a typo here. So they say hypotonic saline, which is very, very bad. Um, <laughs> so, I don't know. I should email them, I guess. Um, and so 
you know, the most important thing, kind of the overarching picture, is you want to perfuse the brain uh, and oxygenate the brain and also prevent herniation. Um, as far as herniation itself, so I think most people have this idea that, you know, you have that one bone people, that's a sign of herniation. So that's going to be your most common. This is going to be your uncle herniation. This is probably an epidural. Uh, but there's actually other types of herniations. You have this central transtentorial herniation, where you actually can get some bilateral symptoms. You can have a cingulate herniation up here, which is so far away from the brainstem, you can actually be a lot more subtle. Um, here you have your transcalvarial herniation, which you think would be pretty obvious. Um, although, I do remember there's one case uh, back in Massachusetts, we picked up a patient who was an ATV accident. We got to the trauma bay. Um, she, she was awake, and the trauma senior was kind of poo-pooing the whole thing, and he was pulling some leaves and some blood clots out of her scalp black. Then he realized it was actually brain. Uh, <laughs> um, you also have this upward herniation. That's not typically traumatic, that's most common with like cerebellar tumors and things like that. And probably the most devastating is this, this downward cerebellar or tonsillar herniation. And that basically leads to flaccid quadriplegia and immediate death. Um, so how do, we, how do we know if patients are herniating? Um, typically, especially pre-hospitally trauma patients, we're not going to have all these fancy monitors. I suppose if we're transferring from ICU to ICU, we might. Um, but sometimes it can be difficult to know if the patient is herniating. So you have those classic signs of herniation, the blown pupil that we spoke about. Um, you can also have Cushing's triad. Uh, if the patient starts to posture, or if they have a sudden decrease in their mental status or their GCS, um, I, I would consider that potential signs of herniation. Um, and we'll also talk a little bit, depending on what agent you use, there's little or no adverse effect from giving someone a dose of an agent, uh, you know, a hyperosmolar agent. And so I'd probably err, uh, be more aggressive with that pre-hospitally. Um, so this is Cushing, so his classic triad is your, your bradycardia, your hypertension, and your irregular respirations. Uh, that's only seen in a third of patients with life-threatening ICP, though. Um, if your ICP is less than 20, your mortality is 18%. If it's greater than 40, your mortality is more like 60%. And that doesn't even include morbidity, right? These downstream uh, neurologic deficits and things like that. Unfortunately, there's not a linear relationship between your pressure and your volume. It's actually a, more of a logarithmic exponential relationship. And so this, this line right here is around 20 to 25 uh, millimeters of mercury. And so once you reach that pressure, well, once you have enough volume, whether that's swollen brain or blood, to reach that pressure, then it really starts going up, and that's when you're at risk of herniation. So how do we treat herniation well, uh, or prevent herniation? We usually do hyperosmolar therapy. Um, and the reason we're able to do that is because the brain tissue is about 80% water, so it's one of the organs with the highest water content. Uh, and so it's very amenable to being dehydrated. So you manipulate the osmos, you try and shrink the brain, especially pre-hospitally. This is kind of the best we have. Uh, nobody will let me do burr holes yet. Uh, I'm trying. I know, actually, Abernathy tried to do one a while ago. He told me about it, but uh, even he got shot down, so they definitely won't let me do it. So pre-hospitally, this is kind of the best we can do. So hyperosmolar therapy, essentially, we'll talk, but there's, there's two big agents. You have the salt and the sugar. So you have mannitol. Um, typically use 20% mannitol, it's an osmotic diuretic. It does have a, a bit of a plasma expanding effect. Classic dose is one grams per kg. Um, and then this is your structure here. As far as the, the downsides of mannitol, um, so some things make it inconvenient. So we generally have to filter it, uh, which creates an extra step. There's an opportunity for error. It might slow down your administration slightly. 
Um, it also causes hypotension. It does this two ways. It can cause some peripheral vasodilation. Um, and also, you know, essentially it's a diuretic. Um, so kind of Bill O'Reilly style. Doesn't really make sense, right? So um, you have this diuretic uh, and you're giving it to, to potential trauma patients. So I was actually talking uh, my friend Bill Hinckley and he posed the question, you know, would you give Lasix to an undifferentiated hypotensive trauma patient? Uh, and you probably wouldn't, so why do we find it acceptable to give mannitol to these patients? Um, it can also cause acute renal failure. There's this concept that they need to be urinating before you want to give them mannitol. And as we know before, uh, a single episode of hypotension is associated with a three times greater chance of mortality in these patients. Um, by the way, you might think me and Bill had this talk like three months ago. It was actually last night on the way back from dinner, so I did manage <laughs> to sneak it into my slides and say, you know, no pressure, no diamonds, right? So, um, Another issue with uh, mantol is it crystallizes, um, as I'm sure some of you know. So it's actually recommended to be stored between 59 and 86 degrees Fahrenheit. This is a picture uh, from our helicopter. It doesn't look like it's 59 degrees out there to me. Um, and this is our lovely city, Madison, kind of locked in with the lakes right there. So uh, winter can get very cold. This is actually our medical director, Ryan Wuben, doing the FOD walk. Uh, <laughs> So we actually cracked two windshields this winter on our helicopters. So you can imagine if it's 3 a.m. and it's minus 20 with windshield outside and you take a helicopter up to 3,000 feet, um, you know, out, your outside temp is going to be minus 40, minus 50. Um, so we can't store mannitol when we used to carry it in our drug packs. It's another thing that we have to keep separate. We have to keep warm, kind of like we had discussed with blood transfusions yesterday. And it's something you're going to have to remember to take out. You can't just leave it in your pack. Um, Hypertonic saline, so it directly exerts osmotic effects. Um, theory, hemodynamically stable and thermodynamically stable. So the, the pros of hypertonic saline directly increases your osmolarity rather than through diuresis. It is volume expansive rather than a diuretic, so it might be better in these undifferentiated hypotensive, normotensive trauma patients. Um, thermodynamically stable, so if we want to, we can just keep it in our packs. We don't have to worry about it freezing or getting too hot. And it has been used since 1919 for ICP reduction, and we'll kind of go into the studies in a bit. As far as the cons, so it's not the gold standard, which we'll talk about. Um, it can cause mild acidosis, just like any you know, normal saline solution can, um, any saline solution really. And there's no clear protocol, so some places give 3%, some give 6%, other places give super salt, that's 23.4%. Um, some places are looking at doing continuous infusions, others bolus, so it's not, you know, there's no clear defined protocol there. So as far as looking at the actual paper, so this is a critical care medicine paper 2011. So this paper looked at saline versus mannitol for the, uh, it's a meta-analysis of uh, a bunch of studies. And so they, they concluded that hypertonic saline was, was more effective. Um, there was a, a very recent paper, Canadian Journal of EM 2016, so that outcomes they looked at here, um, they looked at the meta-analysis and they looked at death, as well as a surrogate marker of management of elevated ICP. Um, and so their conclusion I thought was a little interesting. So um, they basically showed that hypertoxaline didn't decrease mortality or improve ICP when compared to other solutions. Uh, but the other solutions they looked at included mannitol, and so they didn't find that mannitol really helped either. And so because it wasn't better than those, they concluded that you can't recommend it as a first-line agent. Um, and part of this then becomes almost a, a philosophical question. At what point do we want to switch and 
how do things become the gold standard, uh, which is this classic, you know, thing we always talk about. And so you would think, you know, surely there's like this huge multi-center randomized controlled trial looking at mannitol versus placebo. Um, so true grumpy cat fashion, there's not. So um, it's actually kind of interesting. So. There was uh, three papers done here by this, uh, Dr. Cruz, who practiced in the U.S. and Brazil. These were published in the Journal of Neurosurgery between 2001 and 2004. They really had dramatic outcomes, specifically looking at high-dose mannitol. Um, the only problem was nobody could actually find the patients he talked about. So this was included in the initial uh, Cochrane Review in 2005. Um, but then he actually committed suicide, unfortunately, in 2005. And then they actually investigated and they found that they couldn't find any place that he had actually done these studies. Some people assumed he had done them in Japan, they contacted Japan, he hadn't done them there. Um, he was never actually employed by the University of Sao Paulo, which is what he listed, so, you know, a lot of the maths all day isn't, uh, isn't all that great, so this is since removed from the Cochrane Review. Um, this is the latest Cochrane Review, this is 2013. Um, this is Manitol for TBI. And so, to, to quote uh, Dr. Berry, who said yesterday, anytime that you're going to say may, you also have to say may not, right? So this is, mantle therapy may have a beneficial effect. Once again, they're not comparing it to placebo, they're comparing it to pentobarbital coma. Um, and then they basically say, well, it could, but it also could be compatible with no difference, or maybe pentobarb's better. Um, and then they say mantle therapy may or may not have a detrimental effect on mortality when compared to hypertonic saline. And so we don't really know. And I think the single trial, which looked at pre-hospital, which is where we practice, uh, what they showed is that you had an increased mortality if you were given mannitol. Um, but it could also be no difference, or maybe it's better. So this is, <laughs> this is the Cochrane review. So it, I mean, I'm not that great at research, so I, I can't you know, make fun of it, but it's, it's tough. Um, and so their actual conclusion, Cochrane Review 2013, is not exactly a rousing endorsement, right? So they say, um, insufficient reliable evidence, we can't really make any recommendations, and people should do a lot of research. Uh, ideal opportunity for the conduct of RCTs. And this is just three years ago. January of this year, Annals of Emergency Medicine, they also looked at mannitol and the data. They concluded insufficient evidence to support the routine use of mannitol in the management of severe traumatic brain injury. This was just three months ago. I think this sums it up well. They say despite mannitol's long-standing widespread use, there's really a paucity of RCT trials. Um, and then they also go into potential harm. So you can get worse than existing hypotension. You can decrease total body sodium, which can kind of create a hypotonic event that we've spoken about before. And especially if your blood-brain barrier is disrupted, like it often is in these traumatic injury patients, mannitol can actually cross the blood-brain barrier itself and then cause worsening swelling of your brain. So their conclusion, um, and they're comparing mannitol versus hypertonic saline here, is essentially, you know, we don't really know. You can do clinical judgment or follow your guidelines or just go by the Brain Trauma Foundation or basically do whatever you want. Right? So, you know, unlike this case, this might shock you. I'm not, I'm not married. Um, so, so I, uh, I don't think this is a trick. I think that's actually what they, they recommend here. And so this kind of brings me back to they say, you know, the most dangerous phrase in language is we've always done it this way. Um, just looking at the, the pros and cons here. So. Manitol, yeah, it's the gold standard, it's more experience. Maybe the patient also has CHF, it's helpful. 
Um, the cons, though, is a diuretic. It can cause hypotension. It can cause renal failure. It freezes easily. It needs to be filtered. Hypertonic is volume expansive. You don't have to filter it. It's temperature stable. However, it can call it mild acidosis. It's not the gold standard, and we don't have a standardized dosing regimen. Um, and so, as far as what we did, so initially we did carry mannitol, and then um, about six months ago, um, we switched. I like to think it's because of me, it's probably not, but we did switch. Um, and so, right now, we carry 3% hypertonic saline. Um, we're kind of starting low with our dosing. So this is Dr. Josh Meadows, who's one of our neurosurgeons. So our initial protocol now is for 150 cc bowls for adults. Peds, we're doing three cc's per kg, but a lot of people advocate you can go up to 10 cc's per kg in kids. So something to think about going forward. I think we'll be able to become more aggressive as we go. So going back to this gentleman, so you know perhaps we'll give him TXA, maybe he's hypotensive, he transfuse blood, you intubate him. You know, you make sure you don't have a hypoxic or a hypotensive episode. And then you give him mannitol or hypertonic, depending on what your service does. Um, just a real brief thing about other things you can do. Um, so you can hyperventilate. Um, so this is recommended only if they're actively herniating. And this is actually conscious patients. And you can really see how hyperventilation changes their cerebral brain, brain flow. Uh, but the recommendation is you're not hyperventilating these people down to, you know, PCO2s of 10. It's actually to a PCO2 of 30 to 35. Typically pre-hospitally, you're going to be using your end-tidal CO2 for this. So you might hyperventilate down to an end-tidal CO2 of 25 or 30, low 30s. Um, and that's assuming a normal end-tidal to PCO2 gradient of about 2 to 5. Um, recommended you only do this during herniation. Onset is within 30 seconds, peaks within 8 minutes, and it can reduce your ICP by 25%. So it can really do um, some significant help there. Head to bed elevation. So you know this is the simplest, most forgotten way to reduce ICP. As we all know, it's very difficult in the back of a helicopter, uh, especially in these undifferentiated trauma patients where often, basically every time, they're going to need spinal precautions. Um, part of this, though, calls to mind to me, you know, we have patients who are injured. They have, you know, prophylactic seat collars on, and then that makes their intubation more difficult. Maybe they get hypoxic. Maybe they get hypotensive. We know that's bad and yet we're preserving for this hypothetical injury. In the same way here, if I had a patient who was perhaps actively herniating, he might have an L5 fracture, but I know that his brain is herniating, so I might be more likely to boost the head of the bed there. The other good thing is it gets the patient's head out of your groin, uh, which I find always helpful, especially in a smaller helicopter. Um, kind of the last thing, the one, the forgotten one, is actually uh, bicarb. So, 8.4% um, bicarb, which is kind of the standard, what we use, is the same Osmolarity is about 5.8% uh, saline. And they actually have done studies looking at this, and they found that, um, specifically looking at ICP, they compared 8.4 versus 5% saline. And they said it's just about the same. It's just as effective. So the data is almost as good for that as it is for hypertonic saline or mannitol. It might be better in acidotic patients. Um, there's not a lot of research on it. I don't know if that's just because it's really cheap, or it's not, you know, I, I don't know why they haven't done a lot of research. I don't think mannitol or hypertonic saline are especially expensive either. But So, uh, in summary, um, acute treatment with elevated ICP is critical, and, and kind of in my opinion, you know, hypertonic saline has numerous advantages over mannitol. And even though mannitol is accepted as the gold standard, I feel that all the data shows are actually pretty equivalent, and so why wouldn't you go with one that's going to be better for your trauma patients, more convenient, and uh, potentially with better outcomes. 
there any uh, studies comparing one of these agents to doing nothing? No, not really, yeah. Which would be interesting. Um, so that's why the biggest reviews compared, you know, mantol versus pentobarb and things like that. But they haven't really done any studies that compared mantol versus placebo. And the other problem with a lot of these studies, a lot of them are looking at surrogate outcomes. So these are going to be ICU patients who have monitors placed in their brain, and they're going to say, oh, I give mantol, their ICP lowers, but does that really affect their mortality? We don't really know. All right. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We've been really excited to present these talks to you from the Critical Care Transport Medicine Conference 2016. And if that has whet your appetite for more, I encourage you to join us in person at the CCTMC Conference 2017, which will be April 10th through the 12th at the Wyndham San Antonio Riverwalk Hotel. And for those who have not been to San Antonio, it's a great city. We have a great conference with a wonderful lineup of people. And we hope to be able to talk to you and to meet you and to be able to share ideas. So uh, hope to see you next year in San Antonio, April 10th through 12th, 2017. And you can uh, go on ampa.org. That's A-M-P-A dot org for more information as uh, we get the rollout of this program in progress. Thank you so much, Chris. And EMS Nation, we want to remind you that after watching this lecture podcast, your job does not end. Our lecturers and conference speakers and educators would love to engage with you and really dig into these complex transport questions and optimize the critical care transport of our patients all across the country. So please find us on Twitter at AmpaDocs, A-M-P-A Docs, D-O-C-S, as well as E-M-S underscore Nation. And tweet a question to the author of the lecture podcast and tag us as AmpaDocs and at E-M-S underscore Nation. We would love to continue the conversation so we can optimize our patient outcomes. This is Faison Arshad and Chris Fuligar wishing everyone a safe tour.